be seated. As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the letter of Ephesians. We come this morning to the end of this longest sentence in the Bible uh, as we continue to look at Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. The focus this morning will be on verses 13 and 14 as we continue this emphasis upon the extravagance of God toward us in Jesus Christ as we look this morning as this, at this extravagant guarantee of eschatological life, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the entirety of what we have looked at in this longest sentence of the Bible is this extravagance of God to us in Jesus Christ. As we read through this sentence um, again this morning, pay attention and and listen to the reading of, of this scripture through that lens of the extravagance of God to us in Jesus Christ, culminating in the extravagance of God giving us his spirit to dwell within us. Ephesians 1 uh, verse three through, uh, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be a holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance <clears throat> until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you overwhelm us here with the riches of your grace, with the eternal worth and value of the uh, persons and work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
which you have given everything to us through this union that we have in Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, overwhelm us with your extravagance once again, that we would approach you as you are, the one who is far more abundantly able to do or to work than what we could ever dream up because you are eternal. And even though you are eternal, you have condescended to draw us into the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we make a big deal about certain things in our lives that are nothing in comparison to how awesome you are. And so overwhelm us with you once again so that our lives may be put in proper perspective. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You wouldn't know it from looking at me, but there was a time in which I was a lifeguard on the uh, beach in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, the lower part of the Outer Banks, where I got the privilege of being paid to sit in the sun, but also to watch out for people. And it was interesting because we always had, you always had these different families, and you could almost tell by what they had with them, how much they had with them, um, where they had come from, how long they were planning on being there. And one of the things that you quickly learn to look for in these different families is you look for children. And you particularly, you watch when a new family would, would come to and they'd set things up, you would watch to see how the kids were responding to what was happening because quite often you had two different basic ways that kids were responding to the being at the beach. You had the one kid that liked to kind of hang out with mom and dad until they almost force him down towards the water and as he would come to, to the water you could see him you know kind of put his toe in you could see him kind of look around and as soon as that first wave would start to come up they'd kind of walk backwards and kind of you know react you know and just very cautious but then you had the other kind of child this would have been me who gets there and before mom and dad have turned around you're already in the water uh, 12 feet deep. No fear of the waves, the currents, the tides, no understanding of how rips work and how to deal with them. You see the water, you run into the water, regardless of the conditions. In fact, it was really interesting to me when I first moved to Panama City Beach, uh, Florida, as I was working on the beach there, that they actually had a flag system and wouldn't let you go into the water if it was a yellow flag or a red flag. And I, growing up on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, every day would have been a red flag. But there are these two types of kids that you can see in the way that they interact to being at the beach. The cautious, I'm going to watch, I'm going to dip the toe in. What's the temperature like today, you know? 
Is the, is the water moving too fast for what I'm comfortable with? Are the waves too big for me? What, and you can see the caution, and you have the others who just run headlong. Now, I bring this up because what I have seen in the Reformed world is that many of us, if not most of us, when it comes to the oceans of God's grace, is we are like that first child. We are cautious. We kind of want to measure it. We like to dip our toe into it. But we're not ready to just run headlong and, and just dive headfirst into God's grace. We want to, to make this practical. We want our efforts to mean something. We want our devotion to mean something. Yes, we like God's grace when it comes to our salvation, quote unquote, but when it comes to the daily living out of the Christian faith, we want our efforts to mean something to God. And, and inevitably what happens when you approach things that way is that when you have one of those days or if you have a series of those days or if you have some weeks or months or years of those days in which you don't seem to be living up to your own standard of what you think your Christian life should look like because you want your efforts to mean something, what happens is this. That ocean of God's grace that is right there for you to just dive into, you end up coming up to the edge and dipping your toe. My efforts are supposed to mean something for my sanctification. My efforts are supposed to mean something for how I feel with regards to my security in Jesus Christ. I got to talk with an older saint this past week that it was just marvelous to hear the, on the one hand, the humility but then it was also sad to hear the uncertainty that his union with Christ was something that he based upon how he felt. What about those days, David, when I don't feel united to Christ? Beloved, what this text is trying to overwhelm you with is that your union with Jesus Christ is not based or conditioned upon how you feel. It is based and conditioned upon the sovereign grace of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundations of the world that was accomplished within history and is now being applied into your hearts, the efforts of the Holy Spirit. The unfolding of this sentence is an unfolding of the work of the three persons of the Trinity with regards to your union with Christ, where God the Father is described as having purposed and planned. He, he wanted, he desired to have a people for his treasured possession. He wanted you, even though he knew we would sin. 
and reject him. He wanted us anyway. And so he set his heart upon us and he put in motion a plan by which to have us as his own. And the son said, I will carry out that plan. I will come into this world. I will be born. I'll take to myself flesh and I will live out a perfect obedience and devotion to you. And then I will go as a substitutionary sacrifice and die for them. And then I'll be raised by you for them. And then I'll ascend back to this right hand where I will serve eternally as their heavenly high priest. And the Spirit says, and I'll take all that the Son accomplishes, and I'll take that, and I will work that into the hearts and into the lives of those who trust in Him. Beloved, when Jesus went to the right hand, we are told by the Apostle Paul that He became a life-giving Spirit. Where Jesus, in the reality of the new creation that was born when he rose from the dead, he sends his spirit into the hearts of his people where Jesus said, I have to leave, I have to go back to my father. Why? Because if I don't go, then I won't be able to send the helper. And Jesus, in his resurrection, in his ascension, has sent the Holy Spirit, which is the connection between Christ in the heavenly places and his people here on earth. The Spirit is a bridge between Christ and his people. And what he is doing is he is taking everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus is currently doing in his ministry to you, and the Spirit takes that and he applies it to you. What this means, beloved, is that your union with Christ is certainly not conditioned upon your obedience. Your union with Christ is not conditioned upon your repentance either. Your union with Christ is based upon the plans of the Father that have been accomplished by the Son that are being applied to you by the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, our, our passage for our assurance of pardon this morning, we look at a promise from God, a promise that doesn't often get called the, the promise of the new covenant because we tend to think of Jeremiah 31 in those terms. But every prophetic book in the Old Testament is full of promises of the new covenant. That is the promise that continues to unfold time after time after time. And Ezekiel 36 encapsulates in such a beautiful fashion this promise of God, of, a, of the promise of a new covenant, that our disobedience, our lack of devotion and loyalty to God, that he is going to overcome that. By sending his spirit. And his spirit was going to come. 
And the promise of the Spirit is that he will take the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. That through the giving of the Spirit, that that God's sinful people would be sprinkled clean, would be forgiven. The promise goes one step further. Not only will you be forgiven, not only will you be given the new birth of the Holy Spirit, but God says, I will give you a new heart and I will cause you to walk according to my statutes. Now when Paul says here, this long-awaited promise of the Holy Spirit has come, this is what Paul is referring to with regards to this promise, a promise that the Spirit would come and that the Spirit would bring with him a new birth, a new heart, and that the Spirit would be working these things within us, even causing us to grow in obedience to God. This is how thoroughly God-centered God's work is for you, and this is how extravagant His grace is for you. Not just the extravagance of what we've seen up to this point, but the extravagance even where God is sealing your obedience and devotion to him by giving you his Holy Spirit. Paul tells us here that with with being united to Christ, We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have watched any of the 27 different renditions of Robin Hood movie, right? There's there's at least 27 of them, I think. If you've seen any movie that's based upon Robin Hood, you know exactly what Paul is referring to here about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Prince John wants to send some wicked communication to the the enemies that he's plotting with, right? And so he has to write something out. Does he just write it out and hand it to to some stranger and say, hey, by the way, can you get this over to this group of people? Is that what he does? No. How would that group of people know that it actually came from him? I mean, it's not like he's emailing or texting. How would they know that that communication was coming from Prince John? Why do they need to know if it's coming from Prince John? Well, because they need to be able to trust what is there, right? What if it's a trick? What if it's Robin who has written it to trick them? What would they do in those times in order to authenticate and secure what was being said? Well, he would write it out, he would sign it, right? And then that big blob of red hot wax, right? And it's always red for some reason. The, the red hot wax, they'd blob it on there, and then he would have a stamp or he'd have a ring, right? And the seal on the ring was a seal that only the, the, the person that 
that was, that, that it was claiming to be from was the only one who was supposed to have that seal. And that seal, when you saw it, it was supposed to communicate what you are seeing right here. Whatever this seal has been attached to, this is authentic and it is trustworthy. Beloved, what God has given you in Christ to authenticate and secure Christ's work on your behalf and for you to entrust yourself that God the Father will always relate to you through Jesus Christ is he has given you the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity. That the Holy Spirit in a way that is similar to the way God's presence took up residence within the holy of holies of the tabernacle and the temple, that in a similar way, the Holy Spirit being sent from Christ, who is at the ascended right hand of the Father, has taken up residence within you. And his residence within you is not a residence in which he is closer to you so that he can go, uh-uh-uh-uh, oh, that's not a good Christian. Oh, you, you're not taking God seriously if you're going to do that. Oh, you're, not, you're, taking, you know, you're, you're not making a big enough deal about God's grace if that's how, you, if that's how you're going to do things. He's not there to just sit there and wag his finger at us and tell us how awful we are. Beloved, he is there to tell us to quit wagging our fingers at ourselves and to embrace the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us so that we will repent and so that we will renew ourselves in devotion and obedience to God, but not because of beating ourselves up first. Not because of tiptoeing around God's grace and letting a little bit of it touch our toes and, and for us to kind of uh, try to measure whether or not we want to go further. Now, my analogy completely breaks down, by the way. Because if you are in Christ, guess what? You don't have the option of either tiptoeing and putting a toe in or diving head first. You see, if you're in Christ, you are already swimming in the depths of that grace. And what Christ has done is he has conditioned you to be able to function within a new setting. To be in Christ to have been born again in Christ means that, in a sense, you're no longer an air breather on the land. You are now a grace breather in the depths of the seas of God's grace. 
You have been given a new status and you now live in a new environment. You are no longer, as the catechism says, you are no longer in the estate of sin and misery. You are in the estate of grace. The problem is, so many of us constantly try to swim and climb our way out of those waters back onto dry land. Beloved, you have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as God's way of fulfilling his promise of doing everything that you need, even giving you the empowerment of the Spirit that causes you to grow in obedience and devotion to Christ. There is not one thing that God has left out of your relationship to him. And that indwelling of the Holy Spirit authenticates and it secures for you that God has done and is doing and will do forevermore everything that you need. So that the faith that we exercise is a faith that isn't just there to get us kind of started. It is a faith that once for all grabs hold of Christ. So you've been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to authenticate and secure Christ's work to you. But the Spirit, we are told here, is also a down payment. The Spirit is a pledge. And you know what a down payment is. A down payment is, is where you take some of what is promised and you give it. And you say, see this right here? This shows you that there is more that is still to come. And what the Spirit is for us, beloved, as he is this agent that comes from Christ to connect us to the risen, ascended Christ in order to work within us and to conform us into the image of the resurrected, ascended Christ. As the Spirit has come into our lives to do this work in us, what we are told is that this is not just a, a, a moral, it's not just an ethical issue for us. That what the Holy Spirit is, is a down payment of the eschatological inheritance of the people of God. Beloved, when Christ returns, you will enter into the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. But while we wait, beloved, you have to embrace by faith that heaven is in you, for you are ever in it. The new creation is already in you before you enter into the fullness of the new creation when Christ returns. The new heavens are already in you before you are in them. This is what God is doing. He's not just telling us what will happen in the future. He says, here is what has happened. Here are the results right now. And to guarantee those to you that they are yours, I give you my Holy Spirit. 
so that he is a down payment where in the interaction and fellowship that we have with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what we are partaking of, what we are tasting of, is not just a better moral and ethical existence on earth. We are tasting of the heavenly realities now. And beloved, guess what? Those heavenly realities, when you are tasting of them, and if, if you do what, what, what Roger prayed, where you open yourself up to the ministry of the Spirit and cultivate the presence of, and work of the Spirit in your life, you will taste more and more and more of what is already yours in Jesus Christ. And as you taste of the heavenly realities, your life will come to reflect those heavenly realities more and more in morals, in ethics. You are God's treasured possession. And in, in chapter 2, we're going to see this in greater detail. You're his treasured possession already raised up and seated with Christ in the heavens. Your life is perfumed by the realities of the heavenly places. And we can know this, and we can be secure in this, not because of how good of a job we do in grasping hold of it, but because the Spirit has been given to us as a pledge, as a down payment. That what we have now is just a taste of the eternal realities that are still to come. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but one of the things that this helps us to see is that when we talk about the doctrine of last things, or what we refer to as eschatology, Unfortunately, since the 1960s and 70s, what has been emphasized in those discussions are issues about the future that God doesn't tell us the answers to. And so spend, people spend time in wild speculation of what will it look like and what's going to happen. And is, it, is there a tribulation? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill? I'm a pan-mill. It's all going to pan out. I'm not a pan, though. But do you see what gets missed out on? If this is what you're focused on when you're trying to study eschatology, you miss out on the fact that God has communicated to us that eschatology has already begun. And this is what we refer to in theological discussions in, in terms of the already and the not yet. The eschatological life has already come because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. What was he raised into? He was raised into the new life of the new creation, of the new heavens, of the new earth. Jesus and his resurrection is the beginning of eschatology. The last things have come in Jesus Christ. And the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to us 
is a gift of the eschatology that began in Christ that he is sharing with us so that our lives are already bathed in the realities of the eschaton. And the practical benefit of this is that you and I struggle to actually define our existence this way. And instead, we like to define our walk with Christ. We like to define our lives as as employers or employees. We like to define our lives as husbands or wives. We'd like to, to define our lives if we're single or married, if we're children, whatever. We like to define ourselves by earthly things rather than defining ourselves the way God does. And, and, and here's what the result is. The result is, even though you are swimming in the depths because you are reborn in Christ, you try to crawl out, and you try to crawl out, and you try to crawl out. And you will spend more time in the shallows of your own, uh, from your own efforts rather than taking in the depths of what it means to have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. An authentication, a security, a down payment of eschatological realities already. Beloved, the not yet part is not that there's something out there that we haven't received yet. We just haven't entered into the fullness of what is already ours. Quit seeing yourself as having grace as an option in your life. Quit. Stop it. Stop seeing grace as an option for how you walk with Jesus Christ. Stop it. Stop seeing grace as only being there for you once you realize that you've messed up enough that you really need God's grace. Stop that. Instead, cultivate the grace that you are overwhelmed with in Jesus Christ so that in in cultivating the realities of, of what you already have and what you already are, that will lead you to stop playing around with sin. It will stop you from flirting with defining yourself by earthly things. It is the answer that God said we needed to deal with the idolatry of our hearts. Beloved, God's answer to your struggle is not try harder. What he says to you is let go and just and immerse yourselves in who you already are by nature of your union with Christ, which I planned for you before the foundations of the world, which I accomplished for you through my Son, in which I have not left one detail out of place 
and now am perfectly and completely applying it to you by giving you my Holy Spirit. Beloved, the reality is for you that in Christ, by nature of receiving the Holy Spirit, it's like what John Bunyan portrays in the interpreter's house in Pilgrim's Progress. As he the, the interpreter is taking him from one room to the next, to the next, to the next, and he's showing him these different scenes. And, and, and Christian always says, oh, what does this mean? And then the interpreter interprets. Well, he takes him into this room. And in the room, it's dark, it's dusty. There's a fireplace at, at one end. And there's a fire going, and there's someone standing there that just keeps heaving buckets of water on the fire. Just bucket after bucket after bucket. And guess what? The fire never goes out. The fire never diminishes at all. It just, just keeps burning there. Just keeps burning, keeps burning, and keeps burning. And so the Christian's like, well, how is this happening? How, how, is the flame, how are the flames not being quenched by, by this water being thrown on uh, by this person? And the interpreter says, well, let me show you what's going on behind the fireplace. And so they, they walk around and they look behind the fireplace. And there's another person that's just sitting there. I, I think it's like this. I, I think of it in terms of Wizard of Oz. Sitting there with an oil can. Just constantly pumping oil on the fire. Fire can't go out from the water because the fire is being kept alit by the oil. Christian's like, what? <laughs> what does all this mean? The interpreter explains it. Satan, world, the flesh, the devil, sit there and constantly try to douse your Christian life, your spiritual life, it'll constantly try to douse it with water, with frustrations, with aggravations, with trials, with temptations. But it is always the Spirit, not your reactions or responses. It is always the Spirit that keeps your spirit alive and constantly strengthens it even as the world, the flesh, and the devil will pour water upon the fire of your heart over and over again. Because it is the Spirit that has been given to you that caused that fire to be lit to begin with and who is the authentication, who is the security, who is the down payment that that fire will never go out. Beloved, this is what it means to have the extravagance of a down payment of eschatological life already right now by nature of your union with Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do admit that there is so much water out there being thrown upon us. And it is quite easy, Lord, for us to often only 
feel and experience the frustrations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right now, especially, Lord, as many of us are facing trials and temptations in our Christian lives that we've never faced before. So, Lord, save us from ourselves, not not only in our attempts of self-righteousness, but even in our attempts of securing your grace for ourselves or securing um, through our efforts uh, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And instead, may we just receive as the free gift that it is the ongoing ministry of Christ through his Spirit to us, whereby the good work that he began, he will certainly bring to its fulfillment. Lord, help us to see ourselves not on dry land with the options of how deep into grace we go, but to see ourselves truly immersed in the depths of your grace and to find the comfort of resting in Christ in those depths. Not so that we would check out or or be lazy or not care or be worldly, but so that the Spirit's work within us would truly lead us to lead unreserved lives of following Christ. Father, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.